Hey, how you doing? My name is Richard Dolan from Check Your Head UK. I work with people to help them explore, understand and overcome their mental health issues. I had a really great conversation with Carl and Luke from the Featuring Regular People podcast about men's mental health, male stereotypes, social media and how the pandemic has affected us all. If you want to hear a really good conversation on those topics, make sure that you download the latest episode of their podcast. It's not going to disappoint. Take care of yourselves, each other and I'll see you there. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for tuning back into uh, this is episode number seven now of uh, featuring regular people. Um, so yeah, thank you so so much for tuning back in tonight. We're excited for this episode to uh, to come out. Um, but first and foremost, uh, as I always do whenever I start the podcast, is uh, please check out all our social media. Um, so at featuring regular people um, on Instagram and Facebook, featuring regular people on Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts as well. Um, today, uh, our guest is Richard Dolan, um, who's an ambassador for Let's Get Men Talking um, and works as an integrated therapist. Um, so you can find all his social media at Check Your Head UK um, and his website um, is checkyourhead.co.uk. But as we always do, we'll post the links down at the bottom anyway. Um, so Rich, thanks for coming on, mate. It's nice to meet you. No, thanks for having me. Nice to meet you guys too. Um, we're excited to have you on. Obviously, this is a um, you know quite a nice uh, nice topic. Well, in some ways, it's a nice topic to, to be able to kind of talk about and find out more. Um, but if you could uh, give us an introduction, you know, a brief overview of who you are, what you do, um, etc. Absolutely. Um, so, as you mentioned, I'm an integrative therapist, which uh, basically means that I blend several different uh, theoretical approaches to. Um, uh, you know, deliver um, counselling, mental health support. Yeah. Uh, I work with uh, people of all ages, all genders, but predominantly um, just by virtue of the people that are coming to me at the moment, I tend to work more with men. And uh, as a result of that, I've been quite active in the men's mental health space. This is something that um, I'm sure as men yourselves will be aware yeah. is becoming, you know, something that's, that's uh, quite rightfully being spoken about an awful lot more. I'm just going to put it out there right at the beginning in that, um, you know, middle-aged men were the biggest suicide risk at the moment. Uh, yeah. You know, it's something that that is a big, big problem and needs more attention drawn to it. So one of the things that I do as a result of uh, being on Instagram is, as you pointed out, work as an ambassador for Let's Get Men Talking, which is uh, very much, as it says on the tin, about getting men talking. Yeah. It's um, no, and it's... Uh, Sorry, mate. I was just going to say that's a really good platform. Like, that's... Uh obviously like the reason we're excited to do this podcast and you say like it's a nice subject like it, it, obviously it's not but like it's nice to be able to talk about it and I think let's get men talking as a platform it offers like people the opportunity to talk in like a comfortable like safe environment yeah I think that's something that people have certainly uh, yeah men and I think it's important to make the distinction at the beginning that you know men's mental health is no more or less important than women's or children's or anybody's mental health but I think that uh, traditionally counselling, therapy, whatever you want to call it, has been a, a kind of an easier place for women to access. And those kind of conversations uh, are difficult for men to have because of the way society is. So platforms like that, Let's Get Men Talking, and there's many others out there, you know, the Proper Blokes Club, um, too many to mention. All you've got to do is search men's mental health on Instagram and you'll, you'll come up with a whole bunch of them. 
But what yeah. they are doing is creating, as you said, safe spaces where people can start to feel uh, comfortable to talk about how they feel, you know, which uh, traditionally has not been something that men have done. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, we'll we'll jump back into that shortly as well, because, you know, there's so many different kind of aspects that, um, you know, that we can touch on. But for those people out there, um, and I mean, myself and Khan included in that, you know, we, um, I very much know what things like CBT are. Um, mm -hmm. I've gone through that kind of um, myself as well. Um, but just for people that aren't as um, familiar with the term integrated therapy, um, you know, what it, uh, what is it and why do you f uh, think this is such a, like an effective approach? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the reasons that it's so confusing um, and puts people off going to a therapist or looking into it is because there's so many different types, there's so many different therapists out there, you know, it's quite a saturated market. So um, it's really helpful, I think, to be able to explain, you know, what different types of therapy there are. So my integrated approach blends, uh, it does take CBT in as well, but, but it takes three kind of core models. The first being um, what's called person-centered counselling. Uh, yeah. and it's, again, kind of what it says on the tin is very much about the focus on the individual, uh, about their worth and their value and uh, the belief in that person's ability to overcome and resolve whatever issues that they're facing. Um, it bases its approach on empathy and, you know, congruence, which is being absolutely real and absolutely genuine in that therapeutic relationship. And quite often the conditions that are created in that relationship are such that um, the, the person coming to therapy might never have experienced in their life, you know, so we're talking about people who've perhaps grown up without feeling love, without, you know, being kind of nurtured, without being cared for, without, um, you know, being treated in the way that, you know, you or I would, would you know, like to be treated with respect and, and love and care. Um, just having those things present in a relationship can be incredibly powerful in getting somebody to be able to connect with what's going on for them and, you know, uh, understand how they can overcome uh, whatever challenges they're facing. The yeah. other two models would be um, transactional analysis, which is, it, it, you may have come across this, it's been sort of diluted and uh, it, it appears in various different forms in you know, all kinds of um, sort of self-help stuff and uh, you know, business coaching and everything. But it works on the basic premise that we've got three, uh, what are called ego states, which is the parent, the adult and the child. So we, we kind of move between those depending on uh, who we're talking to or, or, or what situation we are in within life. And I'm sure you could probably all relate to situations where you've spoken to somebody and, uh, you know, they perhaps responded, uh, had a little bit of a tantrum, maybe, you know, throwing their toys out the pram. You know, so what that person's doing is they're going into their child mode. And then what you might do is you might then uh, change your method of communication and be a bit more parental, you know and kind of yeah. in a way that a parent might admonish a child. So what we're all really striving for with that model is to uh, exist in the adult, which is where we speak to each other on equal, and we communicate on an equal platform, and we receive you know, messages around us in a way which doesn't trigger us into you know, either responding defensively or kind of having a bit of a tantrum. So it uses those kind of concepts to be able to um, help us understand how we navigate through life and how our relationships work and how we communicate. And then the, the final model that I use is called Gestalt, which is um, much more about how you feel in the here and now. So it might be that we're looking at something, a uh, particular problem or issue that, that's going on, and rather than going back and looking at how you felt at the time, it might be more about how you feel right now when you're talking about it. What's going on for you now? Are you feeling anger? Are you kind of, you know, how is that affecting you in the moment when you're thinking about or talking about something? 
and it looks at a person as a whole. So it's not just the presenting issue, it's, um, you know, uh, their, their age, their sex, their culture, any spiritual elements, you know, their environment. It looks at every aspect of that person. So it doesn't just isolate one particular thing. So integrating therapy is about taking, you know, those models and blending them to draw upon uh, the parts that are most relevant to whatever it is that the uh, the person you're working with needs because that is ultimately the goal is about being flexible and adaptive to meet the needs of that client rather than yeah. being prescriptive in the way that you work so i don't yeah, know I think... a long answer but i hope that makes sense <laughs> no 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 it does um, and it, i think it's absolutely fascinating because you know a lot of the time um, they do this in, in the self-help books i read a lot of self-development books and i think sometimes it, they try to um, you know give these snappy answers which can often be uh, detrimental to the way that you think you know they say are oh, um, even the terms like man up you don't really see that one anymore um, in, in the self-development books that I'm reading but you know lots of like quick phrases um, you know pull your socks up get on with it or just think positively and it's like there is so much more and there is so much more substance to everything other than just that definitely uh, I think you've hit upon something really uh, really key there in that we as a society have started to lean more towards you know easily consumable bite-sized chunks and you know instagram is a great platform to demonstrate that everybody wants something in an easily consumable meme or an image they can just tap like they don't have to really read too much to think too much about it so from a mental health perspective there's been a huge explosion in pages which are about condensing all of this kind of information that might happen over the course of several therapy sessions into a few sort of graphics or pictures that are as you say kind of tips tools tricks techniques and a lot of it's really really good but i think when somebody's in a position of emotional vulnerability and they need to what they actually need is to be held to have a safe space created for them where they can process their emotions and actually kind of work through it what they what yeah. isn't perhaps helpful is a bunch of you know kind of buzzwords or catchphrases or or things like that because that's not necessarily helping them connect with what's going on and um yeah that's that's definitely something i'm seeing more of um and i think you can only reduce what therapy is so much before it becomes uh you know uh, too diluted absolutely yeah. i think like see like then like it just makes me like my head's just flooded with them like little quotes you see it's like a picture of a sunset and then it's like some generic quote about being positive or things will get better and like at any time in my life where I've been like struggling or like anything like that, if I see something like that, it just makes me angrier. Like, cause it's just like, it's such a blanket statement. And like, for some people, I'm sure they can like look at a few things like that and it kind of does make them feel a bit better. But for me, it's like, I don't know, it's just kind of, it's so broad and it's just really, it seems really unhelpful. But yeah, like, how do you do it, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Uh, it's, and if you look at my page, you'll see a few things just like that. And the reason I haven't taken them down is I haven't been on Instagram very long. I never really used social media much before um, I decided to use it for my practice. Hmm. And what I've really struggled with is that there is a, there's so many pages out there that do exactly just that part that you've just talked about that are just kind of lovely images and, and quotes, uh, you know, self-affirmation, positive affirmation, things like that. What I do is I use predominantly film quotes, quotes from films that mean something to me. And then I write about, uh, I use the quote as a way to write about something from a mental health perspective, but not necessarily yeah. uh, using kind of jargon and stuff. And what I found is that people 
don't really want on Instagram, they don't really want something they have to spend a lot of time reading. They want something shiny and pretty. They can oh, lovely picture, lovely quote. Uh, they don't necessarily want something that requires them to spend five minutes reading and thinking about it. So um, what I've found is I've got less engagement on that sort of stuff, whereas I've seen some pictures I've put out. So my brother is, my brother Martin Dolan Photography, check him out, anybody watching this, fantastic landscape photographer. So I've used some of his images and I've used some quotes. And I've had some of my most engaged posts with those where I've got a, what I feel is a fairly well-crafted, informative, useful post that has got less <laughs> than half that engagement because it doesn't look pretty and shiny. Yeah. And, and, and Instagram is about um, how something looks. You know, it's not where something someone goes to, to um, you know, spend five or 10 minutes reading something. So I think what you've hit upon there, Khan, is, is really relevant in that there are people out there who genuinely need help and want help. And what they're faced with is just a bombardment of these kind of twee yeah. quotes, which I think for a lot of people are quite patronising because they're like, <laughs> you know, I, 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 the I, nail on the head. <laughs> yeah. But having said that, there are also people that draw strength from them, and I think that what it what what it is doing, and I spoke about this on another podcast the other day, what it's doing is it's making mental health and the support and the understanding around it much more accessible to people because it's here and we carry these all the time whereas before all of that used to be in the uh you know in the arms of the experts and you had to go to the doctor or to the therapist and through various barriers that prevented people from even thinking about it so yeah absolutely you know, it's up and down but i think that there is a risk that people can take a lot of that that stuff that we're talking about and think oh yeah all i've got to do is this or these three tips and i'll be okay and it doesn't work like that <laughs> i wish it was that simple uh, yeah. but there's a few more questions that i want to touch on on social media um shortly um but i wanted to go um you know as we've kind of discovered already that you're a big advocate for men's mental health in particular um why is it that you kind of went down that pathway and you know, is there more to it than the fact that just, you know, you are a man, um, so that's what you wanted to focus on, or what was the kind of inspiration for that? It's a good question, and one I've been asked, um, actually just <laughs> today, I, I was asked by, uh, by my supervisor, um, so as part of being a therapist, you have a supervisor, and that's really someone that checks that you're practicing ethically, and, you know, it's for you to be able to take any challenges that you have, perhaps something comes up in the client work that maybe, you know, affects you on a personal level, and you need somewhere to take that to make sure that it doesn't you know, factor into how you work. So um, we go to supervisors and uh, we were talking about this and, and they asked me, they said, do you not think, and, and someone else asked me this the other day too, and I'm sure someone will ask me next week, do you not worry that you're, um, <clears throat> that you're excluding women by, by focusing on men? And, and my response was that that is a risk, but I always felt that I would never try to be all things to all clients because there's, there's you know jack of all trades master of none i wanted to be the best therapist that i'm able to be and therefore the people that do choose to work with me i can be the best therapist that i can be for them and yeah. what i've found uh, throughout my journey is that it is a female dominated um you know profession for the most part and that means that if you were to go online now and look at either one of the main directories or anything like that you would be faced with um mostly uh, mostly female uh, counsellors. So for a guy who perhaps wants to talk about something that is unique to being a man, 
um, or, or because of the issues which you know, we'll expand upon, finds it difficult to talk about things anyway, they might want to talk to somebody that they can look at and think, yeah, he looks like me, or he looks like he might understand me, rather than someone that perhaps reminds them of their mum or their gran or their auntie or a teacher at school. So what I've found is that, that I've had men coming to me without really kind of trying to market myself there. So it tells me that there is, there is a demand for that and that the men that have sought me out have obviously felt comfortable you know, in being able to work with me. So it's kind of like going where the demand is, you know, this, this, is, this is what I'm doing, I'm meeting the demand that's out there. But increasingly I've become quite passionate about the fact that I don't think that the, the, the therapeutic world serves men as well as it could do. So if I've got a responsibility to play my part in that, I want to, you know, kind of live up to that responsibility in doing the best that I can to, you know, to meet the needs that's out there. So I think that the one thing that I can do is relate to my own experience as a man in a world at the moment, which I think it's fair to say is quite confusing to be a man. So, you know, it's about sort of playing to my own strengths. That being said, I'm more than happy to work with uh, you know, with women with any with any gender really, any gender, any age. I have done, and I'm sure I will continue to do so. But you know, it is something that I think needs more people to say, "We got to do something about this." You know, so yeah. I'm happy to be one of those voices. Yeah, no, that's brilliant, mate. I think, like you say as well, like going where the demand is, like particularly in the last, I'd say, like two to three years, like I think a lot of like men have realised that like therapy and talking about how they feel is an option for them whereas they didn't know it was before because it's not all that long ago that obviously Luke you said it before like you don't see it in books and stuff anymore but like man up and stuff like that like yeah that was still very prevalent in society not even that long ago like you were mentioning about like films and tv um, yeah. quotes and stuff like there are tv shows and stuff that are obsolete now that came out only five years ago purely for like their views on like gender roles and like men having to be tough and stuff like that and it's society's kind of coming to a bit of a change now where like it's accepted that men can you know have emotions beyond like <laughs> tough brave like yeah yeah absolutely how they feel. i would say actually it's gone beyond accepted and it's now expected yeah yeah and the problem is and again this is this kind of feeds back into the previous question and my answer is that men don't really know how to to do that and I think the reason is that generationally, and I think back, you know, I'm so I'm 43, so I'm, I'm you know, kind of a bit older. And I do come from a generation where I grew up and my role models were people like, you know, Arnie and um, Stallone. And it was all, you know, it was that action movies, one-liners, all that kind of thing. Lots of testosterone, you know, um, all, all the kind of the, the male characters were emotionally stunted. Uh, they had dysfunctional relationships and it was all kind of, you know, uh, aggression, testosterone, all that sort of thing. And we also had a generation of fathers who were raised by their fathers who had come out the back end of the Second World War. So there wasn't this kind of like, uh, this the behaviour of uh, talking about your feelings was never modelled by their fathers, therefore it wasn't modelled by our fathers. So we've grown up and all of a sudden, as you pointed out there, the speed at which things have changed, all of a sudden men are kind of like, what? hold on, we're meant to be able to be sensitive now? Well, how, yeah. how do we do that? And everyone's going, well, come on, be sensitive, cry, talk about your feelings. Yeah. There's immense pressure on guys to all of a sudden just do it. 
but I don't think there's enough help to say, and this is how you do it. Yeah. And this is, this is a safe place. So these platforms, these communities that are popping up where guys are getting together and they're talking about like, let's get them talking and others are, I think, um, a response to that societal expectation that men should be able to do it because uh, what women have had in therapy for a long, long time is safe spaces. And uh, safe spaces is a phrase that, we, yeah, that we've heard an awful lot over the last few years. And I think it's, it's fair that guys have safe spaces as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, of course. And I mean, just to kind of touch on uh, your answer then. So, you know, it has changed a lot in the past five years and we um, are clearly not doing enough to kind of show people how to open up and, you know, what to, to kind of, you know, the things that we, you know, the process of what people need to go to to be comfortable enough to be able to do that. But what do you think um, is the actual like reason for that sudden change in general? I think it's generational again. I think that um, younger people today are much more um, open-minded. I think we're much less bound by, um, you know, the kind of the generational restrictions that came uh, you know, when I was growing up. You know, all we've got to look at is, as you pointed out, you know, how our approach to gender roles and, you know, some of the films and TV programmes, as you say, that were kind of, um, not just acceptable, but were kind of encouraged just a few years ago. Now, actually, they're quite quite outdated and quite ugly and quite harmful. It's a bit awkward to, I mean, a, a good example would be, um, and this wasn't really that long ago, would be Friends, uh, the sitcom Friends, which was absolutely massive, absolutely massive. And it came in for quite a kicking recently when it kind of, it was, it was you know, it started being rebroadcast and everyone was going, oh, actually, this is quite uncomfortable. There's a lot of homophobia, there's a lot of kind of like, awkward stereotypes. So I think that's indicative of how, how quickly things have, have moved on. And you've got this whole kind of like woke movement where, you know, everybody is ultra sensitive to things which may, which may cause offence or could be interpreted as being offensive or aggressive. So I think that we, we are much more uh, sensitive in general, but um, I'm not sure that we have kept up, kept up with that pace of change in terms of meeting the need that that's created if that makes sense. It's a bit of a roundabout answer there, but I guess the internet and social media are another factor in that, you know, I know you wanted to come on to that, so I don't want to jump ahead on there, but I think the connectivity that we have, uh, especially in the last year, um, in absence of being able to physically be with each other, um, we've got a, a much more instant kind of communication approach now, which means information is shared, ideas are shared, things are discussed, opinions are formed and evaluated, at a much faster rate than they perhaps were mm. when uh when yeah before the the internet and that exchange of information existed yeah of course and it's kind of like you know you there's one idea and then suddenly somebody goes oh no this is it and then this is it and this is it and it's like well we haven't actually built up properly for those steps yeah. um but no it's a great answer so thank you um i mean obviously um i mean i've very much been susceptible um well on the on the kind of end of this and I'm sure Khan has as well but there's obviously a lot of stigma attached to mental health um there's a lot of confusion in terms of what different diagnoses are um you know what kind of problems people face day to day and I also think there is a a slight confusion around the terms depression and anxiety uh, and anxiety anxiety i don't know why i couldn't <laughs> say that then that was terrible uh, but you know there's and there's you know being depressed and there's having depression and there's being anxious and having anxiety and i think there was a lot of confusion in mental health in general 
Yeah. Uh, but what do you think the, the kind of main stigmas are and how do you kind of decipher that confusion? Yeah, I think you've hit upon one of them absolutely there in terms of the labels that are, that are, that are used and applied. And from a diagnosis perspective, there are many. And I think yeah. that they're thrown around by people they've been kind of appropriated by people too so here's a great example i'm sure you may be able to say it yourself but you've probably heard somebody say it go oh oh sorry i'm, I'm just a little bit ocd today mm. today it doesn't happen you can't be a little bit ocd and actually that's a really uh, harmful um kind of use of that particular label that completely denigrates people who, who do have and and have to live with um ocd because people will say that when they just they just want to tidy things up or they, they want to put this there. Oh, sorry, that's just my OCD. No, it's not. I'm, well, I'm not saying that people don't have that, but don't feel like that, but people use it um, in a way which completely devalues it from a diagnostic perspective. Mm. And, um, oh, I just feel a little bit depressed today. Oh, you know, oh, it's my, my anxiety's playing up. I think people have started to use these labels to describe a feeling. And I think that there is a stigma that comes with them putting a label on anything. So nobody wants to associate themselves with something that has a negative connotation. So something like depression. You know, are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling anxious? Most people that are feeling depressed or anxious don't know they're feeling depressed or anxious because it's, it, you know, it's how they're feeling. So I think that there's a lot of confusion and stigma around um, being labelled because once you've got a label, you know, it's quite, how am I going to get rid of that? Is that am I going to be depressed? Ever, you know, or another one, bipolar. I'm just a bit bipolar. <laughs> I hate that one. Uh, I'm uh, diagnosed, uh, quite newly diagnosed with bipolar. Um, okay. So cyclophema in particular. Um, but, you know, even now I'll get uh, friends and family that I can you know, oh, you've always been a bit crazy or, um, you know, I'll get some people that are saying, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm just a bit bipolar at the minute. You know, my moods are all over the place. And it's like, well, if you've had to live through manic episodes or depressive episodes, um, yes, you could very well be bipolar. But in a general sense of it, just because you've been happy this morning and then a bit pissed off in the afternoon, it doesn't give you the kind of right. And I do find it quite um, yeah. upsetting in a sense. You know, you try to just think, oh, they don't mean it like that. But yeah, yeah. it's one of those major points, isn't it? There you go. I'm, and I'm really glad you shared that, Luke. That wasn't something I was aware of. And you've absolutely uh, you nailed it there. I think you know, your reaction there was, it, it must be frustrating. You know, mm. kind of, um, it, is, it is disrespectful to your experience. So I think that, the, you know, that kind of confusion and how people will use those kind of terms or labels without really any understanding of what they're actually representing is definitely one of the things. And the other thing I would say is that we are still very um, far behind in being able to accept that mental health has the same relevance as physical health. And again, this is a cliche, you've probably heard it before, but if you break your leg or if you hurt yourself, you go to the hospital, you go to the doctor, we've got no problem with accepting that a physical health condition needs attention and that someone is um, perfectly entitled to take time off work or to convalesce, to take the rest that they need. But when it comes to mental health, there is still a huge stigma around that. And the idea, especially within the workplace, that somebody um if somebody broke their leg at work then you wouldn't expect them to be in for a bit or if they did you, they'd be in on crutches and mm. you, you have this visible uh, indicator that they weren't you know that they, they weren't well and you would accommodate them you might hold the door open for them you might you know take extra steps to prepare the meeting room so that they could get around properly but if somebody had a mental health issue you wouldn't see it 
but also you probably wouldn't be as accommodating of it, or certainly in, in the past you wouldn't be as accommodating of it because um, because it's invisible. So it's really easy to just say, ah, they're just, you know, oh God, they've got another day off, have they? Or, you know, they're, they're off again. Uh, we make massive judgments because we need some sort of evidence. We need to see it. If we can't see it, then we think, oh, they're just they're just putting a, a fast one and they're blagging it. And I think that is a big problem in people actually speaking up and saying, look, I, you know, I, I've got this. I've got, I've got. This is the way I feel because they don't feel that they'll be believed. Mm. And I think a big part of that comes from. So I noticed this when I was at like towards the back end of school when I was like 15, 16, and all of a sudden every single kid was like, oh, I've got anxiety. I'm depressed. Not every single kid, but it was just popping up more and more, and like kids saying they were bipolar and like you got like young kids diagnosing themselves with these conditions because it helps them feel better about the way they feel and don't get me wrong some of them would have had those conditions but like I think there's been a big wave in society of people deciding that they are this thing and yeah. what we're saying about labels like people get labeled with something and then they decide that's who they are mm -hmm. and I think like that really takes away from the people who do actually really struggle with it because it yeah. makes it so much harder for them to open up and talk about it because they don't want to be lumped in with the people who are like, I don't want to say lying, but like making exaggerating, exaggerating. Yeah. There you go. Like, yeah. Yeah. And like when I shared that post on uh, let's get men talking, like, I've never openly spoke about like anything, any struggles, with my mental health. I've spoken to friends, spoken to my family, but always kept it as like, close to my like circle as possible and then when I shared that post like the reason I'd never done anything like that before is because I didn't want to be part of that group who are like oh he's just saying it you know what I mean like it's it's a scary yeah. thing it is and, uh, and again thank you for sharing that I think it, it, this is a really complex subject because um we're much more willing now I think to put our hands up and say this is how I feel or you know I identify as this or um uh, you know, I'm going to take ownership of how I feel and it's very, very uh, difficult to challenge that without um, it becoming a contentious issue. So I think what you have seen and, you know, th this is very difficult for me to articulate without potentially, again, getting it wrong or causing offence to anybody that's listening, but I believe it's true, so I'll say it. I think mental health has become um, monetized. you know, it's, it's mm. commercialised, it's uh, there are people out there that are exploiting mental health and people who have mental health issues for their own gain, for commercial gain, uh, to promote their own agendas, because people are now kind of like saying, oh, uh, yeah, that, that's how I feel. That's how I feel too. And in amongst that, people like yourself who have perhaps struggled and suffered in silence for a long, long time are perhaps getting lost in amongst the people that are flocking to it because it's uh, a way that they can express something. I'm not saying that they don't feel like that, but um, it's like anything where it becomes popular. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, everybody, <laughs> you'll always know about when a band becomes really popular and everyone's into them. You're like, I was into that band like in, from their first album when nobody knew about them. And all of a sudden they get a hit and everyone's like, oh yeah, I totally love so-and-so because it becomes a popular thing. And that's, there's a psychological thing going on there. We, we gravitate towards it. And I think mental health has fallen into that trap, especially with, um, as I said earlier, about the emergence of these pages and these platforms, which on one hand provide information to people in a really accessible way and open up those conversations. But on the other hand, they create 
um, a kind of a magnet for people to flock to that confuses perhaps uh, some of the real conversations that need to be had. You know, and I'll, I'll say it now, there's a lot of pages out there on Instagram that are talking absolute rubbish and that are doing a lot of harm when it comes to mental health. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, some really good points, mate. Yeah, thank you very much as well. Um, I mean, there was obviously the most relative, uh, relative um, topic at the moment is the, the pandemic. You know, mm. I heard a statistic the other day that six million more people um, have started on antidepressants uh, since the start of the pandemic itself, which, I mean, six million is just a, a horrific number. Um, you know, there needs to be a lot more done. But I mean, what kind of, obviously you're on the, on the ground, so to speak. So what kind of changes have you seen in your work um, since the start of the pandemic? Definitely a huge increase in, in people looking for support. And I think the system, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the route that people would take going to the GP has been broken and overwhelmed for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, and it hasn't been able to cope with what people have been, uh, the, the demands that people have been placing upon it. So what's happened over the last you know, 12 months has, uh, has just put even more pressure on it and has driven more people into private therapy, I think. So one of the, the, the biggest changes, or not the biggest changes, um, the biggest uh, shift, I think, is that um, before this time last year, online therapy was, was happening. It had been happening. It was frowned upon, I think, by a lot of people, but people, you know, more older school therapists, because, you know, we're having a conversation right now, and, you know, we're used to talking to people, um, certainly over the last year, we've talked to people across Zoom or you know, WhatsApp video or FaceTime or whatever, but therapy requires a human connection and, you know, you really need to be in the, in the room with somebody. There's no substitute for that. You're never going to be able to replace that. So a lot of people were very reluctant to uh, advocate online therapy because you lose a lot of what, from a therapist's perspective, you rely on to kind of make sure you're in tune. So you lose a lot of the non-verbal communication. You know, like I can only see your top halves. can't see what you're doing with your hands, can't see what you're doing with your legs. So there's a lot Fidgeting, of as always. Oh, yeah. So yeah, but if I if I was working with you, that perhaps that might help me to know how you felt about a certain thing we were talking about. So there's an awful lot of stuff that's stripped away, but um, that argument literally evaporated overnight when everything kind of moved online. So a lot of people were forced to be able to go online, and a lot of people who perhaps wouldn't have done it out of choice, now that they didn't have a choice to go face to face, stepped up and, and, and did it online. So it literally exploded. A lot of people have had to move their entire practices online. And, um, you know, I think that has really changed the way that therapy works because, and again, it comes back to social media and, and, and the digitization, I suppose, of our, of our society in that therapy has pretty much worked a certain way for most of, you know, most of its time. And it didn't really catch up with the way, the pace of change in the world and the things that Carl you talked about that have happened even in the last five years until it was forced to because of what's happened. And now all of a sudden people are realizing that whilst it's no substitute, online therapy is as effective in a different way. Um, and that it makes that help and support much more accessible. So these increasing numbers of people that would have had to wait weeks or months for an appointment, uh, or might have you know, been um, affected by mobility issues or transport issues and couldn't, physically get somewhere are now able to access support in a way that was, you know, very much in the downline before. So I think 
it's forced a, a, a change within how therapy is delivered out of necessity, but it's also opened up a, a new opportunity that can perhaps meet some of the need that's out there. But this is still mostly happening privately or more importantly, through volunteers. And there's a big uh, contentious issue around exploitation of qualified, newly qualified therapists because mm. it's a, not a regulated industry. So uh, anybody can, this is a scary thing, anybody can set themselves up as a therapist. You know, you guys could literally set up a website tomorrow and call yourselves counsellors and nobody wow. can do anything about it. So this is again why the, the danger of this stuff being uh, kind of proliferated on Instagram and people taking it as you know, advice or guidance uh, needs to be addressed. But the fact that it's not regulated means that there are membership bodies who hold a lot of power in the sector. And what they do is they have accreditation programs and they say that in order to be accredited, which is basically getting a gold star, doesn't give you any more knowledge, doesn't give you any, any more qualifications, um, but it means that you have to do X amount of hours. So a lot of organisations, a lot of charities, a lot of voluntary organisations will say, come and volunteer for us and we will give you the acne, we will give you the opportunity to have the hours, but we won't pay you. So there's, a, there's a, a lot of very skilled, very qualified, very talented therapists out there that are... Uh, that they can't afford to um, to work to, to rely solely on private practice, and a lot of the jobs within the NHS and within the health and social care system require accreditation. So it's yeah. kind of like you've got to go through three, four, five years of training, which costs a hell of a lot of money, and you know you've got to go through your own personal therapy, and you've got to go through all of this only to get out the other side to be told that you've then got to volunteer for another three years before you've got enough hours. So. This, this huge demand is not being served by creating this kind of bottleneck in the therapeutic world. Um, and then, you know, there's people like me who are in a position to be able to practice privately. And I work with people on a sliding scale. So I have a set fee, but I will always keep space within my practice to be able to work with people who can't afford that. Because if it gets to the point where I turn somebody down, that I can help just for financial reasons, then I've lost my way somewhere. Yeah, of course. That's... Um... No, it's a, it's a really good point as well. And I mean, to be perfectly honest, I had no idea about the, uh, the lack of regulation in, term, yeah, in that industry. That's fucking mental. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it is pretty scary. And I, I think it will change in, in the years to come. There's a lot of things happening behind the scenes. But I think one of the things is if, if all of a sudden it was a regulated industry, then, then, then it, would, it would highlight just how underfunded mental health is in this country. And it would put tremendous pressure on the government. So there is, at that level, it's very politicised, you know, and uh, and that is so far removed from the people that, that come into therapy. Because when people get in touch with a therapist, they are at a point of need. Then they're not like, oh hey, I was thinking I might need some therapy sometime, or yeah. <laughs> going need it. They're like, I need it now because they are at that point of crisis. They might have been carrying what's brought them there for weeks, months, or years. And, uh, you know, there are people that take that, that huge first step and come up against the door being slammed in their face because they go through this, the, 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 the process you would expect. You go to your GP and the first thing you'll be given is antidepressants. And then you'll yeah. be waiting this to get a call for an assessment where you might be given a label and then that label will determine what, what kind of treatment you get, which will be six sessions of CBT which doesn't really account for all of the stuff that I talked about in my model, which is about, uh, you know, creating a space for somebody to explore their emotions and actually experience being validated and, you know, seen as somebody with worth and value because 
that isn't available on the NHS for the most part because you can't really measure the outcomes and it costs money and da 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 and this is where it loses sight of the person when it becomes about money and figures and we haven't got enough time so we can go into my feelings on that <laughs> yeah no that's fine i mean to be perfectly honest this is the type of topic which me and khan will um revisit uh yeah. on way more than one occasion i imagine but yeah, i yeah. mean we'll go into um i've got a bunch of other points here but yeah no i completely realize we're pressed for time so let's go for let's touch on the social media now the one big thing that i wanted to, to ask is and let's summarise it into, into two key things. But what was your kind of biggest positive that you would say social media can have on mental health? And what's the biggest negative? Uh, so if we're talking about mental health specifically, I would say that um, they're kind of both, they're both the same really in that um, the information that's out there and the, the, the accessibility of um, stuff that can kind of explain and help people understand what they think and what they feel, why, is at, literally at the swipe of a finger or a scroll of your thumb and traditionally that information is only held by so-called experts and i certainly don't consider myself an expert when it comes to the way somebody else feels because that's you know they're the expert <clears throat> yeah but traditionally that information can only be uh, obtained by entering into a kind of a dynamic where you were on the bottom and the expert was there telling you giving you their knowledge in the same way that we go to the doctors because we've got a lump here or this is growing some hairs or this thing is you know causing us a problem we don't know what it is um, now we can google it and pretty much we're all sure that we're going to die because we've got an ingrown toenail but we go to the expert the expert tells what to do but now you can you can go online and you can find information um, that can help you perhaps understand which is where all of this kind of uh, stuff that's out there can be useful you know it can help keep give people context so I think that social media has provided access to information in a way which just didn't exist before. But then you flip that round and you say the negative, it's provided access to information which if it's given um, in the wrong way, if it's badly uh, presented, and if it's accessed by people who actually need, um, you know, who actually do need the expertise of someone that understands the, the context that they're looking for that information in, they're doing it in an unsafe way so this is where advice and therapy differ in that therapy isn't about giving advice it's about helping you to figure it out for yourself and to give someone advice like i say when they're at that uh, point of need uh telling that they they think what they need is for someone to tell them what to do to how to feel differently or think differently um because they don't know what else to do that's why they've come there so yeah. if somebody is in that place and they've gone to the GP and they've said, well, it's going to be a six month wait uh, to see somebody and they can't afford personal therapy and there's nobody in any, any local volunteer groups, then if they go to social media and they find something and they come across, try these three quick tips to fix your mental health. And actually those three quick tips or, um, you know, whatever it is that they're reading are for that individual, not helpful and maybe even harmful. There's no safety net around that person, you know, so they could potentially be doing things which are making things worse for them because, you know, it's being given and received outside of that safe, protected environment that that kind of therapeutic relationship is. So it's a double edged sword. Social media gives us access to information that can help, but it also gives us access to information that can harm. Yeah, I think, like, my views on social media are very, like, I flip-flop a lot. Like, I think it's a, it's a tool, 
and it's all about how you use it like it can be very harmful but like it's also just like can be really beneficial like i've deleted instagram and facebook and then re-downloaded them i've lost count of how many times to be honest with you but (laughs) i think yeah it's all about like what you use it for but i think it can be and like in terms of like the mental health of young people like it can be such a damaging place like particularly when i was like 16 17 like you very much base your like value of yourself on likes and comments and things like that and like I think in terms of education with social media going the way it's going, it needs to be like, there needs to be some sort of education on it in schools because people need to understand like what they've got on just on their phone at the touch of a button. Like it can shatter a kid's like mind state if they see or like experience the wrong things on social media. And it's just not really, I don't think it's spoken about enough. And yeah, like, with the no, it's, it is now it's uh it's it, something it's, that needs to be looked at for sure it is a big one um and i think just to revisit my answer there i think um i probably was quite specific in answering your question there luke about the, sort of the positives and negatives but what you brought up there kind of is a much broader issue so we are addicted to these dopamine hits that we get these validation loops you know everybody posts and what they want is the likes because we're conditioned to respond to that you know it's a pavlovian thing and uh, what, what we have evolved into very quickly is, um, as you said, basing our self-worth on getting this validation. So if you post something, you don't get enough likes, it doesn't get enough engagement. Uh, unless you're, you know, kind of emotionally robust and you, you know, you, you've, you've got a strong sense of self and a strong sense of identity and you've got healthy relationships and, you know, uh, all of the stuff that, um, that, you know, when we've grown up with, with a balanced input, uh, we have, if you've got all that, then it doesn't affect you too much. But if you are reliant on that feedback to tell you that, you've, that you're, you're doing okay, very, very quickly, you descend into a very, very dark place where if you don't get on, a, on an almost daily basis or several times a day with the way that Instagram works, mm-hmm. if you don't get that validation, yeah, instantly you, you are in, you're on a very, very slippery slope because you become addicted to that. And when you don't get it, Rather than having withdrawal symptoms from you know, physical withdrawal symptoms from a drug, you get mental withdrawal symptoms. And those withdrawal mm. symptoms are, I'm not good enough. You know, there's something wrong with me. I'm bad. I'm, I'm not worth anything. And from a child's point of view, who hasn't developed properly, as you said, it can absolutely shatter them. And it is doing that right now. People are growing up with more pressure uh, around, you know, uh, their self-worth than they ever have done before. And I think the, the problem is, is that it's, uh, it makes too much money for people for it to, for it to be stopped. Yeah. yeah, it's, um, I mean, it is a very terrifying thing, you know, I mean, I remember when we did uh, IT lessons back in school, for example, you know, we would learn how to use emails, how to use Word. Most of the time I would just be on like, I don't know, uh, a game, I don't know, whatever online, but I think we need to, like with Khan's saying, I think we do need to integrate social media into, you know, how we are going around our computer usage. And I think it is important because, you know, it's with all of these kind of um, influencers, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, their whole, if you, if you don't look like them or you don't have those kind of relationship photos or you don't have, you know, the designer bags or designer shoes, 
you know, you fall into this trap of, ah, yeah, like you said, I'm not worthy um, because I haven't got what they've got. And it is just, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's just instant gratification. It is. Um, It is. You're absolutely right. It is instant gratification and it lasts for for minutes, seconds at most. You know, when I was at school, it was about trainers. If you didn't have the coolest trainers, then, yeah, there was something wrong with you. But you take that and you amplify it by, you know, a thousand. And that's where, where you're at now. And also what you talked about, those pictures, it's all, it's all fake. You know, yeah. it's, not, it's not a representation of reality. But kids don't know the difference. And yeah. when I, like I said earlier about my role models growing up, I grew up thinking that a guy could jump out of a helicopter without a parachute and land shooting a gun, taking out 200 guys. That was a totally feasible thing for me because you believe what's put in front of you as a child. And, you know, as you grow up, you realise that's kind of fantastical stuff and it's just the movies. It's much more difficult these days for kids to tell what's real and what isn't because it is presented to them as absolutely normal and that this yeah. is what you should be like. But it's... Normal. Yeah, no, for sure. Um I mean, I was kind of, I'm still kind of confused now that, you know, you can't jump out of a helicopter without a parachute. <laughs> well, um, I just, I think it's important for me to say as a, as a professional, please, if you're listening to this, don't jump out of a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say about that, like in the films and stuff, because you obviously mentioned earlier, like Arnie, like I grew up on like Rocky and Rambo, like those are the first like action, like I was from being like six years old, I remember being shown those films. Hmm. I thought from a very young age, that's what grown men like look like. So when I got to a certain age and I was like, well, like, yeah. where, where's my eight pack at? Why yeah. have I not got shoulder the size of my <laughs> head? Like, why do I not look like Sylvester Stallone? And I didn't realize until like, like embarrassingly until I was like 16, I was like, oh, so you don't just like hit puberty and turn into that. Like, that's not what happens to you. Like, no. it's mad. And like, you do kind of take, you do just like, think what you see in films will be reality and now now that's what's happening on social media you think the lifestyles you see presented on social media like yeah that's obviously what's going to happen for everyone because if you're yeah. young and impressionable you don't think any different like yeah thankfully absolutely. i'm 23 years old now i'm at an age where i'm like just because i see something on social media i know that's not going to be my experience but if you are like 10 to 13 years old you're not going to be aware of that yet no you, you aren't and you know, it's it's not as fantastical as the, the you know the kind of jumping out of the plane or jumping out of the helicopter thing. Uh, it is it, painted as normal life, you know. And body image is a massive thing as well. Now, when I was growing up, the only people that went to the gym were you know kind of uh, rugby guys or you know people that were like powerlifters, you know, or like the, the odd guy that was you know the 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 big guy in the school, but. You know, over the last 10, 15 years, uh, five years especially, my, yeah, the obsession with going to the gym is, is, is huge. And guys did not go to the gym for the most part when I was growing up. You know, it just didn't exist unless they were you know, very much into probably usually rugby. But, yeah, that was the thing. But um, the pressure on guys to look a certain way, you know, to be you know, like single figure body fat and be absolutely ripped and, and walk around like that whilst still having a, a social life yeah. and drinking. but then nobody's talking about the huge steroid problem that sits behind that and you know the the unhealthy um diets and, and all the kind of stuff that goes to get that perfect instagram picture or uh you know or, or whatever so there's there's a, a lot of pressure on younger people today massively 
Yeah. Absolutely. Um, right, I know that, well, just a couple of things, uh, small things now before we start to wrap up then. I mean, most importantly, uh, thank you very much for coming on. However, um, for people that are listening to this that might not necessarily know where to go uh, to find this kind of information out or if they're at a point of crisis, like, what would you recommend? Um, you know, where would you uh, signpost people to go to if they kind of need immediate support? Well, I think that uh, that's a risky one to be too prescriptive about, Luke. So I think yeah. the first thing to do, as much as I've kind of talked about the system being broken, is that if you haven't reached out, well, the first thing to do is to talk to somebody close to you, okay? So yeah. be it a friend, be it a family member, reach out and just say, listen, I, I don't feel okay, okay? Just ask them to listen to you because people are more receptive than, than you think, okay? And I think that we're becoming um, more aware of... Um, of people needing to, to, to reach out and ask. So the first thing I would do is find somebody that you trust. Think about somebody that you trust and say, listen, I really need to talk to you. The first thing that you need to do is just get something off of your chest. And that, will, that won't make you feel better, but it will start the process. If you haven't got somebody that you feel able to speak to, then there are helplines out there. The one that I would speak to first and foremost would probably be the Samaritans. That's exactly what they are there for, and they will be able to give you advice and guidance about what your next step should be. I would also absolutely advocate going to your GP and speaking to them because the GPs themselves are, for the most part, absolutely lovely, dedicated, caring people who are not representative of the system within which they work. Okay, so they're not just going to farm you off with pills. There is a process that they've got to follow, but they will also be able to give you information and signposting. Um, if you are in a position where you can, where you, you're able to access private counselling, um, there are people out there that offer it at reduced rates, and there are also um, providers who will allow you, or, or rather, give you access to counselling with counsellors in training. Now, these are counsellors that are uh, supervised; that they uh, they are only allowed to work with people when they get to a certain degree of competence. But because they are in training, then the fee is much less. And there, the part of the training requires you to get um, usually a minimum of 100 hours of, of, uh, of client time. So there are many, many providers out there that are you know, looking for clients to come in and facilitate that. So yeah. you know, that, is, that is a route to it. There are other um, kind of charities out there that offer it. So you know, quick Google will, will reveal what is local to you in your area. Um, if you're in a position where you're able to pay for it, then I would say that the two places that you could probably start would be Psychology Today or Counselling Directory, which are, as you know, they sound just directories of therapists. You can search by area, you can search by the type of therapy that they offer, the type of issues that they work with, um, male or female, and you are then uh, in, in the driving seat with regards to the type of therapist that you want to choose. And what I would say is if you do that is that remember that it is your choice and that you have to be comfortable and you should feel comfortable with your choice of therapist. So if you need to go through two, three or four until you find somebody that you feel respects you, listens to you and understands you, then that is absolutely your right. Okay, because not every therapist is right for you. So uh, there's different yeah, ways in which you can go about it. But the underlying message there is talk to somebody. Mate, that was, um, thank you very much as well. I think that's really, um, you know, the whole episode has just been a really um, kind of intuitive and just, yeah, it's been a great experience. So thank you very much for your time as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, 
Just we'll we'll wrap it up. I mean, uh, unless there's anything you'd like to chime in with, Khan, quickly. No, no, I just wanted to say, mate. Yeah, thank you very much. Like, it's very enlightening. Um, like everything you've said there is like I feel like a lot of people can kind of resonate with that or resonate with them, and they can connect with it as well. And like just saying about like talk to somebody. So I don't know if you experienced this, Luke, but when I did um, share that post on Let's Get Men Talking, I had a couple people, people that I would never expect that I wasn't even particularly close with who just dropped me a message just to like, not necessarily like share loads, but just kind of say that they were having a bit of a rough time themselves. And like anyone, like I don't know how many like listeners we even have that aren't people we already know, but if there is anyone and like you are really struggling to talk to somebody like happily drop me and Luke a message, I'm sure Luke can say that as well. Like, yeah, I will, absolutely. I will, I'll talk to anybody and offer what advice I can, but yeah, thank you very much, Richard. It's been a very enlightening conversation. No, you're welcome. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And, you know, I guess if anybody listens to this, does take anything away. It's if you need to talk to somebody or I'd, I'd add, be ready to listen to somebody if they reach out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Richard, we would love to have you back on again at some point in the future. Uh, but most importantly, I really enjoyed that one and, uh, we'll speak to you soon. Yeah, yeah, no, thanks, thanks guys. Look after yourselves. Cheers, Cheers. and you. Cheers.